0: Well, this morning, we come to the infamous sinful shipwreck of King David, and here's my encouragement to us this morning before I pray. First encouragement is don't waste this sermon by not personalizing its message for yourself. Instead, acknowledge, but for the grace of God, go I. There's no point in standing in judgment over David. In Galatians 6, Paul writes, Brothers, if any is caught in a trust in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too may be tempted. And so we have an opportunity this morning to pray for spiritual humility. And I've been sobered by this passage, and I hope you'll join me recognizing that sin is deceitful, that our desires are powerful, and that God cares about holiness. And so we must depend on him with humility. The second encouragement is that I'm praying this morning is more than sobering, but that the sobriety of our own sin leads us to a desire to fight sin. I pray that taking a stand against sin is not viewed as old-fashioned or stiff or prudish or legalistic, but rather that we fight dangerous, sinful shipwreck with blood-earnest worship. Why worship? We fight sin with worship because a heart that is humbled by God and a heart that is happy in God leaves less room for sin. And I say blood earnest to be provocative about how high the stakes are. Our sin is not silly. Our sin is deadly serious. It's high treason against the high king of heaven who was sacrificed for gossip, lust, and anger. And through blood earnest worship, we suffocate sinful desires and we satisfy righteous desires. Through blood earnest worship, we see the murderous results of sin and the all satisfying beauty of God. Here's the third encouragement When we fight sin and pursue righteousness, we shine in the world. We show the world how the gospel can transform a people. Our righteousness can become a compelling picture to the world around us. And we aren't pointing to ourselves. We're pointing to the transformative power of the gospel. Here's the final encouragement before I pray. If you've been sinned against like Bathsheba or Uriah, I've been praying that the Lord would tenderly care for you during this sermon. We have a king in Jesus who will never sin against his people. Or in a room this size, if you were the one, perhaps, who sinned. I've been praying for your heart this morning as well. For conviction, for repentance, and for the courage to make things right. And if you've already done those things, then for a reminder that Jesus offers to endure the consequence of your sin. And he's promised us that one day he will give us rest from our struggle with sin completely. So let me pray, and then let's turn to the Lord's Word in 2 Samuel 11. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to see the surpassing worthiness of Christ. That the desires in our heart can be satisfied in Christ. I pray that we would leave here this morning taking our sin more seriously By resting in Christ. Our obedience is not so that you would accept us. Our obedience is a result of your acceptance of us. We long to delight your heart. And so, Holy Spirit, we look to you and ask for your help this morning. That you would guide us according to your word and help us to see Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Point one resist spiritual pride, or you could think of it as spiritual laziness. This is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you didn't bring one, there's a Bible in front of you, or you can pull it up on your phone. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, that's his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel... And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David should be leading his army against their enemies. That's his job as Israel's king. Instead, he's wandering aimlessly on palace rooftops. He stayed home from the battle, which is unusual for David. And we're left guessing as to why this is, but he's off his game. He's not doing what he should be doing as Israel's king. There are habits of spiritual life and spiritual formation that we can't view as optional if we're to live the Christian life the way God intended. There's a reason that soldiers clean their weapons and keep their powder dry. There's a reason that athletes train. In an effort to rightly guard against suffocating legalism, we cannot fall prey to outlawing spiritual disciplines. Striving, straining, fighting, longing. These are all good gospel words appropriately describing the fight of Christians against sin toward righteousness. Here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do that. They exercise self-control to receive a perishable wreath, to receive an earthly reward. But we, an imperishable one. Paul's saying, Our stakes are so much higher for us. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Spiritual pride or spiritual laziness is deadly to the church. We need to remain spiritually vigilant and attentive as his people. So don't get comfortable with a prayer life that's careless or distracted or formulaic or even non-existent. Instead, pursue desperate, hungry, expectant, honest prayers that express your total dependence and humility in God. And don't settle for a Bible reading plan that's random or rushed or non-existent. Don't rely on this gathering to get your Bible intake for the week. Maintain the thrill of God speaking to us of waking up terrified of the day ahead of you and then hearing God speak to you through the Bible. Don't lose the surging, rising joy of God's Word, strengthening faith and supplying hope and delivering comfort. These are ways that we stay spiritually ready. Don't get used to not gathering with the church for worship each Sunday, each Lord's Day. Resist the multiplying list of reasons you're okay not gathering with God's people on the Lord's day. Gathering is vital. Don't let it become optional in your own heart. Don't forget the power of hearing the saints sing and cry out together in prayer and come under the humble preaching of the gospel. And don't shrink back from community. Don't move back from friendships that are transparent and edifying. There are few things sweeter in this life than enduring trials with friends who strengthen your grip in the gospel, who faithfully pray for you, and who by their presence make the load seem lighter. We don't know exactly why David stayed in Jerusalem. And while Joab and all of Israel go out to war, did David genuinely need a break? Were the pressures too high for him? Did they ask him to stay at home? We don't know, but he's off his game. And he, and more importantly, others are about to pay for it. The best defense, they say, is a good offense. We need to remain watchful and attentive as his people. The stakes are too high. Our enemy is too cunning. Our sinful desires are too strong. There is no room for spiritual strutting in the heart of a Christian. We need to resist spiritual pride or laziness with spiritual humility and attentiveness, a deep, glad dependence on God for life and godliness. Here's Paul again, a chapter later, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And I want to argue this morning that we fight sin through blood earnest worship. Stay sheltered near the cross. Mentally near the cross where you're honest about your spiritual need. You see the weight of your sin and what it cost God but also clear about his grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Resist spiritual pride and laziness. Second point, reject sinful desires. 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 through 5. Look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. David should be leading his army into battle. Instead, he's napping the afternoon away. And when he gets up from his nap, he walks aimlessly on the rooftop, and he spots a beautiful woman bathing. And the spiritually lazy king of Israel is suddenly gripped by what he sees— The image comes into clear focus and everything else becomes blurry and unimportant. It's as if David fills in for Adam and Eve in the garden and he spots the one fruit on the one tree that God has forbidden them. This is the moment your thumb pauses and you scroll back up, the moment your eyes linger rather than bounce. This is the moment you sense an opportunity for gossip. You see a window where you can spread a bad report. This is the moment, all these moments, when we must tighten our armor and fight. It's if not, this is the moment where we will embrace evil. Look at verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is Bathsheba, David. She's the daughter of your faithful elite warrior, Eliam. This is Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a Gentile, and one of your courageous, loyal warriors. Most importantly, David should have known that this is Bathsheba. She is loved by God, an image bearer who deserves dignity and respect. Now, I'm convinced that King David's marriage practices have polluted his heart. They have softened the ground of his heart. Marrying many wives and taking many concubines have hardened David. It's deceived him into a godlike view of himself, using the women around him, feeding an insatiable appetite, an appetite that God says can only be satisfied through the lifelong commitment of one man and one woman woman. Look at verse 4. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Stop there. David saw. David sent messengers. David took. David slept with her. Now much ink has been spilled on Bathsheba, But the focus of this story is about David's sin. God will rise up in the final sentence of this chapter and he will confront David's sin. But what exactly is David guilty of? David's sin seems to be distinct from Amnon's sin in 2 Samuel 13 that we'll come to in two weeks. There in 2 Samuel 13, we're told that Amnon forced himself on his sister Tamar because he was stronger than her. We're also told that Tamar pled with Amnon not to do what he was determined to do. So it would seem that David is not guilty of exactly what Amnon is guilty of. And by the way, we'll talk more about abuse then. However, the text is clear that David uses his authority and his power as king wrongfully and abusively. He is an absolute monarch. There is no one to hold him accountable. No one other than God. This absolute monarch David sends messengers and takes this woman from her home and she comes to him and he lays with her. Could Bathsheba refuse the king's summons and the king's sexual advances and live? And maybe she did plead with David and it's just not recorded for us here. But it seems clear to me that David wields his position and his authority to pressure Bathsheba into this moment. And the text is totally focused on David's sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah. And next week Matt will walk us through the parable that Nathan confronts David with. And in that parable seems to reinforce the unjust theft. Now look at the rest of Verse 4. In parentheses, there. Now, Bathsheba had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, Bathsheba has just finished purifying herself according to the ritual cleansing customs outlined in Leviticus 15. She's just completed a menstrual cycle, clarifying that the baby is clearly David's and that her bathing was an act of worship. And soon after she returns to her home, she realizes that she has conceived and she sends word to David. David needed to reject his sinful desires, instead, he surrendered to them. Instead of exposing sin's lie, Seeing the satisfaction of righteousness and resisting and running like Joseph, he surrenders to his sinful desires. In James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, we read that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, is, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The source of our problem with sin is our desire. Sinful desires give birth to sin. And sin leads to death. That's the progression that James holds out for us. Desires leading to sin leading to death. Therefore, if we want to fight sin, we battle it at the source. Sin makes promises To our desires that sin can't keep. Sin makes promises to our desires that sin can't keep. If you explode here and you vent your anger, then you'll feel better and they'll know what's up. If you share this bad report about your colleague, you'll gain the respect of your boss that you desire. This Netflix series is not a big deal. You can handle the graphic scenes and then move on. You deserve a few more drinks after the week you've just had. You see, we have legitimate desires for respect, for comfort, for rest, for adventure, for companionship. They're legitimate desires. The problem is sin can't deliver what you desire. Sin can't help you relax. It can't medicate your fear. Sin can't resolve your stress. Sin can't supply the adventure. Sin only leads to death. And so we must expose the lie. In that moment, when our heart desire tempts us to surrender to sin, we must expose the lie. What am I desiring in this moment? What do I long for? I'm tempted to sin in order to get that thing. But sin can't deliver. Drunkenness, pornography, excessive leisure, laziness, gossip, anger, these are all insatiable. They are a bottomless pit. They don't satisfy. And so here's the alternative you feel that desire for respect, for comfort, for acceptance, for rest, for adventure, whatever it is, whatever that good desire is, you turn away from sin. And you turn instead to Christ. You gaze at the beauty of the Lord through blood earnest worship. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is why spiritual pride and laziness are so dangerous. If we are going to fight sin with worship, then we need to have that fire burning continuously. You won't be able to fight if you have not been training. If you've not been cultivating a heart where you find God glorious and beautiful in that moment where you're tempted to sin, you will not be able to succeed. We need to cultivate hearts that long for God all the time so that in those moments our hearts are ready, they're persuaded that God is good, that God is satisfying, that if we fear the Lord, we will lack no good thing. The time to cultivate that heart is in preparation, it's in training so that in those moments it, where it's critical, our hearts already know where to go for satisfaction. We need to be persuaded that Jesus is more satisfying because we've tasted it before and we know it's true. Here's the third point. Refuse to cover sin. Verses 6 through 13 of chapter 11. Verse 6, so David sent word unto Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. David attempts to cover up his sin. It's premeditated and it's shameful. Uriah is retrieved from the front lines and David pretends to care about the battle. And then sends him home to his house. David's scheme is embarrassingly obvious to the reader and perhaps to Uriah too. Why would David take one of his 30 most valiant warriors away from the battle to give him an update? But when you're rattled, couldn't you be accused of desperate, frantic attempts to hide your sin? But David's scheming fails because Uriah the Hittite has more integrity than David the Israelite. Look at verse nine. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. And when they told David Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark, and the the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. There is no way that I'm going down to my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife when Joab and all your servants are camping in the field. David, as your soul lives, I'll never do it. Here is principled integrity. Here is loyalty. Here is a stinging rebuke of the cowardly behavior of King David, who abandons his army to the front lines and while away pilfers the wife of one of his best warriors. The wickedness of David here is highlighted by Uriah's uprightness. We should look at the integrity of Uriah and see the wickedness of David. But David is determined to cover his sin look at verse 12 then david said to uriah remain here today today also and tomorrow i will send you back so uriah remained in jerusalem that day and the next and david invited him and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk and in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord but he did not go down to his house the stench of our sin Cannot be covered. Eventually, in this life or in the next, our sin will be exposed. The wrongs that we have done will be uncovered. We cannot cover sin. It will rot and it will spread and it will be revealed. And we must be extra watchful when we have some power. David wields his power to take, not to serve. He uses his power to manipulate and to coerce Bathsheba and then Uriah. He's using his authority to his own advantage. He's not employing his power to serve as he did so marvel- marvelously with Mephibosheth a few chapters back. Try to say marvelously with Mephibosheth <laughs> three times fast. So be watchful parents. How you wield your authority over your children. Don't cover your sin. Don't excuse your bursts of anger while you correct theirs because you're in charge. Be watchful at work. If you have some authority over colleagues, don't use your authority to protect your misuse of time while you hold them accountable for theirs because you're in charge. Be watchful at home, husbands. Let Jesus be the model for sacrificial, sanctifying leadership. Be careful of your body language and the volume of your voice during a disagreement. Do not intimidate. Be careful that your posture in sex is selfless and sacrificial. Put to death all manipulation and pressure. Be watchful at church elders. 1 Peter 5 calls elders to lead by example, not by demands, not to domineer, but to serve, to restrict the use of authority to the word of God, and even then to teach with courage and with all patience, to be careful to steward spiritual authority, knowing that we will give an account to Jesus for how we led. Our sins cannot be covered. Even if we have some sort of power in the relationship, one day Jesus the judge will faithfully execute judgment. You won't get away with that thing. You cannot cover your sin. It will be exposed. Jesus says in Luke 12, two, "'Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed "'or hidden that will not be known. "'Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark "'shall be heard in the light, "'and what you have whispered in private rooms "'shall be proclaimed on the housetops.'" Our sins cannot be covered. Our sin must be taken away. Are you in a situation like David this morning where you're in the middle of a sinful slide toward shipwreck? Sinning, hiding, covering, running. There's a call this morning to turn. So Peter preached in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. There's an offer to return. Somehow in the gospel, because of Christ's sacrifice, someone like David can receive mercy. And someone like Bathsheba and Uriah can receive justice. It's resolved in Christ. So turn this morning. David's not there yet, he's stubbornly digging in. And point number four is repent early. David realizes that he's dealing with a principled man. If this sin is going to be covered, Uriah needs to be killed. Look at verses 14 and 15. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David sends Uriah back to the front line with a letter for General Joab. And he doesn't know just how treacherous David is in these moments, how blinded David is to his own sin. The letter is Uriah's own death sentence and he furnishes this letter loyally to Joab just as he's instructed. I wonder what Joab's response was as he opened this letter. Does he make eye contact with Uriah? Does he put the pieces together? Does he understand what David is is up to? Either way, he doesn't seem to hesitate. Verse 16, As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Uriah is no stranger to battle. He knows how to handle himself in the forefront of violent attacks. And I'm not sure exactly how Joab carried out the order, nor what Uriah was thinking as his colleagues pulled back from him. But David gets his wish, and Uriah the Hittite dies that day. Look at verse 18. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? And then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab knows David well, and he anticipates his reaction to this tactical blunder. And so the messenger is told to respond to the king's anger with the simple statement, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said to him, or sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. I keep waiting for David to feel the weight of his sin, but he won't or he can't. And his response to Uriah is callous and grim. Don't be displeased, Joab. The sword devours one and now another. Now press ahead with the attack. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. When Bathsheba hears the news, she mourns and she laments, and then David brings her into his house, and she bore him a son. Sin always grows. You can't control it. We think we can. We think we can hold this thing under wraps. But like rotting flesh, it festers and spreads and eats away at the good tissue. That porn addiction won't stay hidden. And this isn't just an epidemic for men. Rising numbers of women are indulging pornography as well. And it's going to grow in frequency. And you will be bolder in where and when you look. And it will grow with intensity. And let's not forget the enormous human trafficking abuses being supported through the pornography consumption. And the longer you wait to repent and turn from your sin, the harder it will be to do it. And this is true of any sin that we're nurturing. The longer we wait to repent, the harder it will be to do it. Repent early. In the final sentence of our passage, we read, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's not actually strong enough. Literally, this says, The thing David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. The Lord rises up in this final sentence and pronounces his verdict David's actions were wicked. It is a fearful thing to face the displeasure of the Lord, the abiding discipline of the Lord. We should all feel the sober weight of sin because we've all surrendered to sin. We've all rejected God. We've all tried to cover up our sin. We've all not turned as we should have from our sin. So how do we get out of the weight of God's displeasure? How do we get out from under this? We humble ourselves and we repent. Matt's going to help us look more carefully at how this looks in David's life next week. But I don't want us to wait completely. I don't want us to feel the crushing weight of our sin any longer than we have to. Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's urgency in that. Call upon him. Seek him. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And what will we find? I don't care if you're David. What will we find when we turn to the Lord? That he may have compassion on him and turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. Christian or not, every one of us should hear a call this morning to take our sin seriously and to turn from it. To turn from it to a God who is compassionate, to a God who will abundantly pardon. Avoiding the displeasure of the Lord comes down to repentance. Turn with all your heart and he will abundantly pardon. Why? Because he's not like us. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. God is not like us. God is not going to hold a grudge. God is going to ensure justice for the wrongdoing, either in you or in Christ on your behalf, and God will show mercy to the sinner. He abounds in mercy and steadfast love. And if you turn, no matter how deep, you've run, no matter how long you've rebelled, no matter how far gone you feel, He will respond with overflowing compassion. He is a God who will abundantly pardon. And so we're going to end in the conclusion with just rest in Christ. Rest in Christ. Fight dangerous, sinful shipwreck with blood-earnest worship. Rest in Christ. You will not avoid sinful shipwreck by trying really hard, by walking out of this sermon and trying really hard. You cannot avoid sin with a comprehensive to-do list. You must feel how dangerous sin is. You must feel how high the stakes are. You must feel how powerful the desires of your heart are. And then you must turn to rest in Christ. You must worship Him with blood-earnest worship. You must play a good offense. Yes, nurture those spiritual disciplines so that when the time comes, your heart knows where to go for satisfaction. To fight sin, we need to believe that Jesus is all-satisfying. Not just in word. Our hearts need to be persuaded of that truth. We could sin or we could obey, and obedience is more satisfying. we don't fight sin so that God accepts us. We do not fight sin so that God accepts us. We fight sin because God has already accepted us in Christ. That's why we fight. And we have God's Spirit living inside of us who makes obedience possible, who makes striving possible. Rest in Christ Sing to the Father, depend on His Spirit, live a life of joyful, humble dependence, forsake spiritual pride, and rely on Christ. O God, You are my God, earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. God, we we want to affirm at the end of this sermon that our ability to obey you is totally based on your grace. We cannot obey you in our own strength. We need you to make us alive. We need you to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do that in the hearts of Christians and those who haven't yet come to faith in Christ. Help us to fight sin with blood-earnest worship. The stakes are too high. Our sinful desires are too strong. We pray for your help, and we pray for a sense of joyful anticipation of your work, your ongoing work, and delight in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.